back to your book, Wall Street's Grand Deception, does a very interesting analysis on the the bonus gravy train. In other words, uh, these multi-million dollar producers, they call them producers, and um, they'll get scooped up by another firm and given a massive bonus. And it's never always that simple, but you think that practice has corrupted the whole business model? I, I, it, it has, I know it has, and I'll give you a first person account of it. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. And that was Wall Street industry veteran Norm Papoose talking about what he sees as Wall Street's grand deception. It's the title of a new book he's just published. It lays it out warts and all about the practices and programs and shenanigans maybe on Wall Street. It's not a knock on every individual professional financial advisor, wealth manager on Wall Street, more on the business model because Norm Papoose is pro-Wall Street, pro-free enterprise, and pro-investing done the right way. This book offers an expert's take on deceptive marketing practices and arms investors with the knowledge of how to spot high-quality portfolio advice and avoid falling for a slick salesperson. Norm Papoose has been there, done that. He's been on the trading desks in different parts of the world and he has been a financial advisor slash wealth manager. Different terms are bandied around these days but he took a break from the industry um, when he was working for a major Wall Street firm. He explained that to us in a wee moment. You heard a clip from my interview there earlier with Norm. And before we get to the interview, I got to say I'm a little late this week with the episode. I've been traveling and at events and I'm planning, um, well, an announcement uh, soon and in the future, which will be exciting. And it's been taking up quite a bit of my time and it's been a very busy weekend. But this this episode with Norm Papoose is going to be worth the wait because he understands Wall Street intimately, the operations, the plumbing, portfolio analysis, the two sides of the street, the institutional side where the big money is and the retail side where consumers gravitate to. Norm believes many consumers slash retail investors have been suckered. We'll hear more about that in the interview. Before we get to it, it's time for our weekly segment of Future Shock 2.0 with Ira Wolf. Hi, John. Your listeners are probably tired of me harping on Future Shock and what I've been calling a perfect labor storm. But based on quite a few recent headlines, it seems like many business leaders, managers, government officials, educators, and Main Street folks still don't get it. The recession might slow down the economy, higher interest rates might tame inflation, but labor shortages seem to be here to stay. First, let me remind our listeners that demographics are not on our side. For most of these leaders' lifetimes, our labor pool has been growing. In the 1960s and 70s, nearly 2.5 million new workers, aka the baby boomers, entered the labor markets. In the 1980s, the economy cooled and the entry of Gen X a much smaller generation slowed labor market growth. 
but it didn't matter because the baby boomers and a whole new generation of working age women entered the workforce. Between 1950 and 1987, labor participation for women jumped from 32% of the population to 57%. And women started completing college, postgraduate degrees, and achieving professional degrees at a much greater rate than men. At the same time, men started dropping out of the workforce for many reasons we'll explore in future episodes of Future Shock 2.0. But I digress, because in the 1990s and early 2000s, millennials flooded the labor markets. And once again, we had 2.5 million new workers each year. That is, until they didn't. For the past decade, we've had a perfect labor storm of the lowest number of births in our history, the exodus of baby boomers from the labor markets, and an immigration spigot that has come to a screeching halt. Today, under 500,000 new workers, down from a high of 2.5 million, enter our work markets each year, and it's only going to get worse. A recently published article on Business Insider points out that the great people shortage is coming, and it's going to cause global chaos. I highly recommend Future Shock 2.0 listeners check it out. The article points out that we are already experiencing the beginning of this great labor shortage in industries ranging from airlines to daycare to military service. We've talked about those in the past. In the coming years, many more sectors and occupational fields will be affected, with fewer drivers, teachers, engineers, doctors, care workers, programmers. Many companies will produce or perform less. And for anyone who thinks the impact of the pandemic on our fragile healthcare system is behind us, think again. Tents are popping up around hospitals as the epidemic of RSV infections attacks our kids. Flu season is about to break loose at the same time, and our hospitals still can't figure out how to recruit or retain enough healthcare workers. The Insider article I mentioned earlier concludes with this. The world will need nothing less than a revolution of our minds. We need innovation and new ideas. I couldn't agree more. And Ira Wolf will be back next week with another segment of Future Shock 2.0. Ira is a workforce trends expert, a prolific public speaker, TEDx talker, and host of the top-rated Geek Skeezers and Googleization podcast. Speaking of podcasts, I highly recommend you listen and tune into Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais of Odeon Capital Group and Matt van Alstein, also of Odeon Capital Group. Dick is the Chief Financial Strategist. Matt is Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And I also join the show each week up there on Apple Google, Spotify, and wherever you get and listen to your podcasts. The latest episode looks at the controversies and the downfall of the former British Prime Minister, Liz Truss. Just all the events across the globe, inflation, China, uh, what's going on in the banks, and at the recent bank earnings reports Dick Bove has a warning for investors. It's all up there on Odeon Capital Conversations. You won't want to miss it. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. My guest is the financial industry veteran, Norm 
Norman Papoose, who pulls back the curtain on how retail wealth management firms work, in his words, and how institutional clients enjoy greater performance transparency. According to Norm Papoose, he's the author of Wall Street's Grand Deception, which is just out. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Norm Papoose, welcome to my show. Hey, John. Good to see you again. Hope all's well. Thanks well, for having we, me on. Oh, I'm delighted. We've known each other for the longest time. Uh, you've been on Wall Street. You had a long and varied career uh, overseas and in the US. You've been a financial advisor. Um, you've covered the gamut. Just tell us a bit about yourself because you have a new book out, which we're going to dig into in a few moments. And it's a personal story on many levels, but it's about what you see as a kind of a grand corruption on Wall Street. And you're not bashing up the practitioners as, as a mass group, but you have a lot of bones to pick, a lot of financial bones to pick, and it's eye-opening stuff. Tell us about your background, and then we get into the book. Sure. Well, I started out in the uh, futures markets, much like the last guest you had, and we uh, sold futures products. I was in the 72nd floor of the Sears Tower, which is really nice in Chicago. Went back, got a master's degree, and I started working for institutional clients after I moved to London, worked for some uh, investment banks over there, a uh, old venerated merchant bank. And uh, after that, some things happened, including uh, the attacks of 9-11. I moved back home and I decided to give people the benefit of my advice. And so I decided to switch from the institutional side uh, where I'd been working to the retail side. And what I found was that after working for two of the larger retail uh, firms, they weren't interested in performance. So they were interested in sales. And uh, that really disappointed me because I know that when the institutions look at their portfolio performance, they get certain metrics that they know uh, exactly what the value add of their investment advisor is, but all that disappears on the retail side. And that's what the book's about. Really, there are actually two sides. There's the institutional side and then there's the retail side. And the street is an exceedingly complex animal uh, operation and all of those things. But you are greatly disappointed during your career, as you say, as a financial advisor. It, it, it just, you walked away from it essentially. I did. I, I walked away from it. Uh, and part of it, you know, was, uh, I, I'll tell you, it was quite the day. Uh, I lived down here in Texas and I lived on Galveston Island at the time. And I'm driving back the day after Hurricane Ike. And Hurricane Ike took out the first floor of my house. And uh, as I'm driving back, you know, avoiding boats that are littering the highway, I hear on the radio that Bank of America bought Merrill Lynch the day before. And I just, got crushed because essentially I lost my job and my house in 24 hours. Um, I had only been with Merrill Lynch a couple of years, but I knew that when Bank of America purchased them, the first thing they were going to do was purge as many bodies as possible because they are more geared towards technology than they are uh, the human factor. And, and I was right. That was uh, September and I was let go uh, four months later in January. But I do want to say that they that uh, in their defense, Merrill Lynch and Bank of America treated everybody who was impacted by the hurricane very well. What year was this? Uh, this was 2008. Okay, so that was around the time of the financial crisis. So you had a career, a brief career, 
at what was then Merrill Lynch. Uh, you worked at other, you worked at UBS for a while? I worked at UBS prior to that in Northern Virginia. Uh, that was quite the experience. And one of the, my favorite stories about retail wealth management I tell uh, from UBS, I'm a trainee despite the fact I had a master's degree in financial markets. And despite the fact I had many years of institutional work underneath my belt, they put me in the training program, send me to New Jersey to listen to uh, their experts. And the highlight is a speech by the CEO of UBS. Well, he comes in predictably late and he tells the audience, I'm sorry I'm late, but I was on the phone with our largest producer out in New Mexico. And he says that when the markets go up, this producer's clients don't benefit as much as they would if they were in the markets. And when the markets go down, the clients are punished more than what the market should punish a typical portfolio. So he was telling us basically this financial advisor was selecting his own securities and not doing a very good job of it. But at the end, he looks at 400 people in the audience, shrugs his shoulders and says, well, what can I do? And everybody laughed. And I sat there and said, what can you do? You're the CEO of the largest wealth management complex, one of them, in America. You know, why can't you tell this guy to do what he should for the benefit of his clients? And as I learned in the retail world, uh, it's not about portfolio performance. It's about how much money you bring in the door. And Wall Street marketing works very hard to prevent their clients from understanding exactly what value is brought by the financial advisor. And that's where you know this book hopes to lift the veil on Wall Street's marketing, to show that it's more than just a friendly uh, face that you want to see. If you're paying this person a percentage of assets under management, you want to see performance. You get that on the institutional side. You get the reports that tell you how much value is added by the advice. There are only two ways in a non-taxable account that investment advisors can add value, timing or security selection. That's it. So what I always tell people is, you know, does your advisor add value by timing or security selection? And they look at me with a blank face because this kind of thing is never spoken to the client unless the client brings it up. And then they get all these studies that say, well, you can't really do that and you can't beat the indexes and timing doesn't work. And truthfully, most of those studies are really flawed. Well, let's go back to the beginning and uh, this will explain some of your motivation also for writing your new book, Wall Street's Grand Deception. Uh, first and foremost, you say, as you will read the genesis of this book and my wealth management career was the suicide of your younger 18-year-old brother. The reasons behind his suicide are what catapulted me into this industry. I hope to change it for the better. Needless to say, that was a quixotic effort. Um, that was a tragic time in your family's life, financially and losing your brother more importantly. Nobody wants to lose a family member in those terrible circumstances. Can you take us through that, Norm? Sure. It's back in the 1970s, a, uh, a broker from Wheat First Securities um, got hold of my father, who was a very successful physician in Northern Virginia, and he convinced my dad to bring my father's retirement account to him. And this was the time of the gold and silver boom. And uh, essentially, he convinced my father to 
get long the silver's futures market. And uh, dad started off well, but then as we all know, you know, the bubble popped and dad rode that down uh, at the suggestion of the broker. He virtually wiped my dad out. I mean, we were really, really close to, you know, declaring bankruptcy and put tremendous strain on our family. And uh, as you know, financial stress uh, does not do um, good things in a family situation. And I didn't realize it at the time, nor did my parents, but you know, the, uh, the stress on the family manifested. And unfortunately, my, my brother internalized it. And I, uh, I came home one night and uh, after I was requested to by my dad because they were going out, but my brother was there and my brother wouldn't open the door. And uh, I broke it down and I found it. None of us knew that he had this, you know, incredible pain that he was dealing with. And truthfully, I, I send it back to that broker who acted so irresponsibly, you know, towards my father's account and put all that financial stress on our family. I believe that uh, absent that stress, my brother would still be alive today. And uh, years later, after I became more familiar with the industry, I went back to my parents and said, you know, we can still go after the brokerage for what they did, because it was clear um, from what I had learned you know, you know, in, uh, in the industry, it was clear that they had, uh, they had acted fraudulently and illegally. And uh, my parents wanted to put it all behind them, which, you know, who can blame them? Um, but I still harbor, you know, a, a deep, resentment, as you can imagine, over all that. Uh, how could a broker not be supervised, even in the 1970s, to the point where he virtually wipes out your client? And uh, that served as the motivation for me to get into the wealth management industry. And it's something I've always, uh, I've always kept inside as my uh, motivation to help people you know, grow their wealth. I'm, I'm out of that now because I don't like the sales side of it. It's a uh, it's a part of the industry that I think really needs to be addressed. And there's a reason that often you get a lot of polling out and uh, financial advisors, you know, kind of sometimes rank above lawyers in terms of uh, industries that are not held in high regard. Well, it's about asset accumulation, assets under management and uh, not about performance as it should be. So a good skilled financial advisor is gold and there are some Absolutely. out there and you're not beating up on the good ones clearly but um i don't want to bring up the pain too much here your your family's finances were wiped out because of that investment your dad took from that uh, snake oil salesman for want of another description yes absolutely what are we talking about can you can you i mean it was well into six figures mm. it was well into six figures Mm. And what's amazing here is that your dad had a very successful career. He was an educated person in the medical profession. I've seen that before. I've done stories on really sophisticated, well-educated um, professionals who have no clue of finances or of Wall Street and have been wiped out. A lot of people who are very intelligent have a, uh, a fatal flaw, and that is that they believe their intelligence uh can port to other industries and they say well this is just a bunch of numbers i can figure this out and they have all these studies that you know prove whatever they want them to prove and when you combine intelligence with a, a little bit of arrogance and a pile of studies um bad things can happen in financial markets 
And like you said, you've seen that. It, uh, it, there are very few industries in this world that are as humbling as the financial markets. Those investors with a lot of wealth um, are often classified as accredited investors, right? Yes. And these are the same investors that will be wined and dined and charmed by very successful um, financial advisors, as they're known as today, and they're no longer called brokers. That's another section of your book. And of course, the charts will be proffered over a very um, enjoyable, luxurious dinner, right? Right. They will show the performance of stocks over the long term and this thing and that investment. And in theory, it all looks so good. In theory, it always looks good. And unfortunately, the regulators uh, don't play as strong a hand as they could. I'll give you a really good example. There are two standards for advertising. Uh, one is the SEC market rule and the other is GIPS. Now, GIPS stands for Global Investment Performance Standards. Those standards say that when you show a client a, a portfolio, that you must include fees and expenses in order for the client to, uh, to learn an accurate uh, performance of your past trading. On the market, on the SEC market rule, you do not have to include fees and expenses when you show clients uh, any past performance. It's, it's a standard that belies logic, truthfully. And uh, one of the first things I tell people in, in the book, other than, you know, asking the advisor how they provide value, is it through security selection or market timing, is asked to see, ask them if they have a, uh, a global investment performance standard audited uh, track record. If they don't, move on. And, you know, kind of spoiling the ending here, they're very hard to come by. Advisors would rather rely on sales than portfolio performance. So it's all about sales and asset accumulation. Um, there's three interesting takeaways in, in your book. A skilled financial advisor is your best asset. So you're defending good financial advisors. Yes, Wall Street absolutely. firms are a for-profit business. Okay, I'll give them a good score on that. We're all running a business, it's free enterprise. Accordingly, their marketing departments bend the truth to suit the firm's bottom line. They're your words. And finally, having your advisor or their firm produce an investment performance report is a blatant conflict of interest. And then you go on to talk about um, the best way to go about that. It, it, it's a really interesting uh, read because you were in the industry and you've worked in London and um, you have a lot of skills that you bring to this and you have a very compelling and sad um, personal story. I never read the book, but I, I, the, the title seems to ring a bell and I'm going to pick it up or order it on Amazon. It's a book, I believe it's actually from 1955, Where Are the Customers' Yachts? Yes. By Fred how do I pronounce his surname? Fred Schwed or Junior? Fred Schwed. I, I, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it's a, it's a classic investment book, essentially saying, you know, if you believe Wall Street marketing, all these clients should be very wealthy, yet they're not. Hmm. And there is an ad that perfectly encapsulates this, which drives me insane when I when I saw it. And it is of a couple, you know, about my age, your age, and they're sitting on a hill overlooking a lake. And they're talking to each other about how wonderful the retirement's going to be, you know, when they can finally build a house on that plot of land they bought next to the lake. 
and the camera widens out and the financial advisor sitting next to them. And the financial advisor says, you know, I think if we move a few things around, we can make that happen sooner. Mm. Are you kidding me? This is how they want to sell their services by this, uh, you know, lovey-dovey, fuzzy-wuzzy advertising. Mm. The advisor is sitting there and telling them that he can improve the performance of their account. Why wasn't he doing that last year? And by what measure does he have that he can do that with success? Has he done it before? That kind of thing never flies on the institutional side. On the institutional side, they will put out an RFP request for proposal from managers, and they'll have small cap managers, distressed bond managers, currency managers, and they will bring in three or four and interview them. And they, if you are granted money, if you are granted the assets to manage daily, they download your performance and they review it basically quarterly. And if your performance is not what it was uh, before you got the money, in other words, if your performance was not what they expected, you'll get a phone call. And then if your performance continues to slip, the institution will call up, say, sorry, it's not working out. It's just business. Send us our money back. Contrast that to the retail side, where you walk into a financial advisor's office. They do not show you a track record of their investment performance. And they basically try to sell you on their personality and the cachet of the firm they work with. Couldn't be two different standards. Financial advisors perform a valued service. I always tell people to get a financial advisor. It's kind of like saying, you know, how do I lose weight? Well, are you more likely to lose weight if I give you a fitness coach and a chef to prepare uh, nutritious meals? Or are you more likely to lose weight if I just hand you a book? The answer is obvious. Coaching works. That's why professional athletes use coaches. The same thing with investments. Financial advisors who are skilled will absolutely benefit your portfolio. And financial advisors like to show a Vanguard study. And this this is where studies get really interesting. A Vanguard study showed that on average, a financial advisor will add about 3% to the portfolio. But you know something, John? They didn't use real portfolios. It was all fiction. They created all the numbers on what they thought you know, would work. Uh, and truthfully, there is no uh, well, repository. Here, Norm. Uh, yeah. if, if, by that standard, then that was fraud they committed. That's not that that that's a legal standard. But I think when you when you put a study out there or a portfolio performance, and it's not based on actual real portfolios, mm. that should be a watermark across every page. Kind of like when you see top secret, you know, in the movies, when people are looking at top secret documents, they have top secret. Yeah. Well, these, you know, these studies should say, well, these aren't real numbers, but, you know, these are our best guesstimates by experts. So, so, so they made, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but they made up these numbers or they, they pulled them. There has to be some apples to apples to make them look, make the company look um, legit. Yeah, well, experts did put these together, but why would you have experts put the numbers together when you have millions of actual portfolios you can use? Mm. Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. 
Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is the financial industry veteran, Norm Papoose, author of the new Wall Street's Grand Deception, which he says pulls back the curtain on how retail wealth management firms, the big Wall Street firms, work and how institutional clients, the big money, enjoy greater performance, transparency. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. You get into an interesting psychology of Wall Street. Emotions and sales go hand in glove. So it's all about emotions in many ways. And that's, as you referenced, the uh, commercial. It's all about an emotional experience. It's not about performance or sales. Um, There are some firms out there, it seems, trying to walk a straight line on this now. In other words, they're coming out with ads saying, you will only pay us when we perform for you, in essence. What, what do you make of those? People don't know this, but if you are of sufficient means, you can share profits with your investment advisor. Most investment advisors will tell you that that's not legal. It actually is legal, but you have to be of a certain stature financially for it to happen. I maintain that if you are providing somebody a percentage of your wealth in a percentage of your wealth on an annual basis, mm. they sure as heck had better outperform an index fund that you can buy from Vanguard for you know, 25 basis points a year. Why in the world are you paying somebody you know, 1% or 1.5% on a million-dollar retirement policy uh, when they aren't telling you that they are adding value to your account? Pay them in commissions. It's going to be much less expensive. And truthfully, by their own words, they're going to give you the same advice. Well, of course, a, a lot of employees, although not a ton by the metrics, um, have a 401k accounts at work. Um, and basically, they bypass the broker. They're not going to Wall Street. Right. And the Department of Labor tried to do something about the advice on 401k. And then a senator from South Carolina uh or the congressman from South Carolina, actually delayed the rule for two years. And by the time the rule got to court, it was challenged and they had to pull it back. And it's been a complete fiasco on 401k. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, 401ks uh, were essentially uh, something that was brought up in the 70s and they, they exploded. Financial advisors hate 401ks because essentially the 401k plan provider only has to market to the business and the investable assets bypass the financial advisor and go straight into uh, into their competitor. It, the other thing is that when you're on a 401k and you're speaking to the person who's selling it to you, you should ask them exactly what repercussions there are if they if their uh, performance doesn't hold up to the asset allocation model that they've been assigned and get it in writing. I don't think they'll do it but you can try. Yeah, you mentioned get everything in writing. Uh, just on that, I, I'm curious to your thoughts. Back in the day, a lot of American companies gave their workers on retirement a um, pension for life, as it were. You know, the old-fashioned defined benefit or pension. That's pretty much gone. Yes. Is there a case to be made to bring that back? I know it could has a lot of downsides, but it's a huge amount of upsides for workers. 
I think there is. I really do. And what they have to be careful about, where pensions went wrong is where they got overly generous. And when you get an overly generous pension fund, uh, that means your performance or your contributions have to do better. And in industries where the, the pool of workers is shrinking, it's especially important to not increase benefits. Benefits from, uh, from these lifelong pension funds should really cover your basics and a little bit more. As soon as they start going uh, too far in order to gain votes, essentially, is what happened, or gain, uh, yeah. gain labor concessions, that's when the pensions start running into trouble. So it's funny because when the workers advocate for, for better pension benefits, they're actually advocating against their, their own interests. It's, it's worthy of another episode. Maybe we'll have you back and we'll talk about that. Um, because 401ks are getting beaten up right now, as we notice, uh, with the plunge in the markets down 25% year to date, something like that. And probably has a ways to go. Who knows? So anybody retiring now has seen, unless if they were smart, they you know diversified another, another buzzword of Wall Street and maybe their losses won't be so bad. But it raises a lot of troubling issues really at the end of the day, which is, amazes me. A lot of Americans are really retired on their social security. That's the reality for a huge amount of Americans. It's not Wall Street money. No, you're, you're right. A lot of people are uh, retired on their Social Security and Social Security is, you know, guess what? Bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, if you look at what is called and very few people understand this concept and I, I'm not going to get political. I'm going to this is factual and it's to correct a misunderstanding. If you look at the last 50 years since maybe 1972, not once have we had a year that the debt has not increased. Yep. And people say, well, wait a second, Bill Clinton, you know, decreased the, you know, the deficit. We actually had a surplus. Not the case. Go back and look at the debt levels. Because when they reference the Bill Clinton, I guess it was 1999, 1998, the year where we actually had pretty good tax policy, pretty good fiscal policy, they neglect to include what's called intergovernmental debt. And intergovernmental debt is, has a lot of the uh, Social Security IOUs in it. Yeah. So if you want to see the last time we actually ran a surplus in our budget, you have to look at the debt levels. And I think that goes back to 1971 or something was the last time we actually had a surplus. Only because we can print our own dollars and we're the reserve currency. If we couldn't, we'd be in a whole hell of a lot more trouble. Yeah, I mean, Social Security by definition is bankrupt and medicare and a lot of other programs and we do have to i i i'm with you on that we have to manage our, our debt uh, you don't hear many people politicians now talking about modern monetary theory because right now it doesn't seem to be working so well no you don't but uh I, I'll, I'll tell you two things modern monetary theory was going to be the most talked about uh thing in 2019 2020 until COVID hit uh then it kind of went away and, and the topic was COVID everywhere because that was the framing of the 2020 election yeah uh you can pretty much look at that now and say okay that's not going to work but John let me direct your attention to something else you've heard of modern portfolio theory yes Modern portfolio theory it, you know, has a few questions of it on your Series 7 exams, et cetera, et cetera. Do you know when modern portfolio theory uh, was first, first put forward? 1956. Hmm. Okay, how modern is that? And one of the key tenets of modern portfolio theory is the use of uncorrelated assets. 
Now, I defy anybody to come into my office and show me an uncorrelated asset these days that I can expand over a $100 million portfolio. Where are the uncorrelated assets? Modern portfolio theory. Yeah, and, and just for a broader audience that may be listening to this, uh, just give us a quick education on this. Who does this benefit and does not benefit institution versus retail? Why should we be worried? That's a great question, John. You should be worried because, I, as I described in the book, Wall Street's Grand Deception, portfolio performance reporting for institution client, institutional clients is vastly different than uh, portfolio reporting for the retail client. Yep. So even though there are very few, if any, uh, uh, uncorrelated assets these days, institutions can absolutely identify if their investment advisor is adding value. Retail, yep. retail investors can't. Who wants to have a performance report? And studies show that people raise their eyebrows at this and think it's not fair. Who wants to have a performance report that's produced by the person that you're grading? No, that's, that's very clear in the book. And um, it's, a, it's a sham in a sense, what you're saying. And then for the institutions which have the resources and can make these demands on those handling their portfolios on the trading desks, et cetera, et cetera, they get a, a real granular account of how everything is going to get this so-called alpha, this so-called beta, and it's broken up into chunks and you can, you know, it's time sequenced and it's really in-depth and they can see if they're being screwed around. Absolutely. And, uh, and I'll tell you a, a trick that retail financial advisors do because they are able to produce re performance reports of different lengths, sometimes just a summary, sometimes the summary with a few notes, but sometimes they can produce a performance report that's a clear inch thick on a very simple account. Mm -hmm. And a lot of financial advisors produce the really big report because they hand it to the client, knowing the client's going to look at that not want to take the time and effort and just look back at the financial advisor and say, I trust you, just tell me what's in it. And yeah. it's the worst thing that you can do. Back to your book, Wall Street's Grand Deception, does a very interesting analysis on the, the bonus gravy train. In other words, uh, these multi-million dollar producers, they call them producers, and um, they'll get scooped up by another firm and given a massive bonus. And it's never always that simple, but you think that practice has corrupted the whole business model? I, I, it, it has. I know it has. And I'll give you a first-person account of it. Uh, when I was at one of my broker-dealers, I watched a very successful uh, group come into the office and they had been hired using a bonus structure that you described. Uh, and the bonuses usually take the uh, form of a loan. So they'll give these financial advisors a very large loan uh, that has great terms and they sell the financial advisors to switch uh, firms by saying, you know, you can really use, if, you're, if your practice continues to grow the way it has, you can use the, the uh, revenues from your practice to pay the loans directly. So a lot of these financial advisors are getting seven, sometimes even eight-figure loans to change firms. And I watched one group come in who had received a seven-figure uh, loan from a very well-known uh, broker-dealer. They came in and immediately switched everybody in their, in their book from low-cost mutual funds to high-cost uh, high revenue hedge fund uh, hedge fund products, and uh, it, it, I, I just sat there with my mouth open. What got them there? Uh, they were completely prostituting themselves 
and doing a great disservice to the client. Um, but that's the way that a lot of these financial advisors figure out how to pay their loans back early is by switching their existing client base who trust them greatly into higher commission products. Yeah, and that helps them uh, satisfy the demands on them from corporate. So they're forgivable loans, as it were. So you have to reach a threshold and it gradually um, you pay back the company. But if you meet those thresholds, you have a million dollar bonus in effect. Right, exactly. And I'll give you another way that the, that, uh, the system is gamed. A lot of media put out top financial advisor lists. And it's really interesting and they stopped doing it. Some of them stopped doing it. But if you look at the ones that were done a year, two, three years ago, first of all, they will tell you in the fine print portfolio performance is not part of the ranking. However, the asset size you manage, the uh, the, the touchy-feely, fuzzy-wuzzy uh, stuff we get back from your clients and the amount of revenue you generate for your firm are all considerations. Can you imagine hiring a lawyer based on how much he bills his clients? That's what these rankings are, you know, are telling us. Further, since when can portfolio performance not be a determinant of who the best financial advisors are? It's insane. And if you look at the lists, the ones that rank high always have more assets under management than the ones that rank low. You know why that is, John? Because who is going to license from that company, the list to put in their advertisements. Would you rather have a company with a billion dollars under management licensing that list from you to show their clients in an advertisement or a or a company that has, you know, let's say $50 million under, uh, under assets? Obviously, the one with a billion dollars in assets has a much bigger marketing budget to use. So that's why, in my opinion, you always see the big time producers at the top of these lists. They have more money to uh, to license these lists and use them as advertising. And there's nothing about their performance over their history of their career. And and the other thing about these um, multi-million dollar bonuses, in some cases, a financial advisor who can't meet the demand sometimes ends up getting They're fired. They're fired. And you, you you mentioned at least one instance in the book of somebody who's now an Uber driver or selling pizza. Yeah, he, he was he fired. His career was trashed. His career was trashed. And it goes beyond that. These broker dealers can actually come after you legally and and get a judgment, a monetary judgment against you. Mm -hmm. uh, so the pressure is quite real. You not only will lose your job if you don't produce, uh, but they will come after you for the money that they gave you in that uh, in that low interest term friendly loan. Um, it, it's it's bad news. And the, the uh, broker dealers should really be ashamed of themselves. They laud it when they bring brokers over or financial advisors over from another firm, but there's a real dark side to it. And then there's all these lawsuits and litigations and arbitration. Yeah. Um, that's a whole other side to it. If you look across the landscape, all the big wirehouses, as they're often called today as well, and our brokerage houses, keep changing names every so often. Would you say the majority of financial advisors out there are good and ethical? Any way to kind of sum that up? I would absolutely say the majority are ethical. I have no problem saying that. Are they good? I'm going to hedge my bets a little bit there. <laughs> uh, and the, the main reason is even they don't know if they're any good. Mm. They service the client. 
they do things that a financial advisor should do, you know, asset allocation modeling, investment management, estate planning, insurances, and all of those things are valuable. But all of those things, like when you hire a lawyer or accountant, should be charged on an hourly basis. If you are going to be giving a percentage of your assets away, you should know the performance of the portfolio, period. Yeah. So, so you're saying also these skilled financial advisors have to be a, another kind of a cliche, but holistic approach. In other words, um, be able to really go granular on performance and what you're invested in, uh, offer um, tax strategy ideas, and, and really hold your hand and be on their game. Absolutely. As you pointed out earlier in the program, a lot of people really don't understand the financial markets and really don't understand how to handle their money uh, for when they're going to need it in their non-revenue producing years. Those are the benefits of hiring a financial advisor, mm -hmm. and they need to be compensated for that. You know, everybody gets paid in this industry. Everybody gets paid in every other industry. They need to get paid too. But my point is, is if you're going to pay somebody a percentage of your assets, they better perform on the investment management side. Otherwise, go to commission at an hourly rate. That's a great story you tell at the start of the book about when you had to come to New York and you met up with a senior muckety-muck at the Harvard Club and he was high level and uh, your jaw dropped in conversation because he shared something with you which had you dumbfounded. Yeah, we were meeting with a uh, with with um. Actually, I'll, I'll go ahead and say we were meeting with Jack Schwager, the guy who wrote the Market Wizard, okay. and uh, th this person was a very high rated in Goldman Sachs. And as we're talking and having lunch, um, the person looks at me and goes, "So, you know, how does your portfolio perform?" And I told him the truth. I usually do very well at missing you know market downturns. I really stink at catching market upturns. And I said, "Well, how do you do?" And they said, let me tell you a story. I thought I was doing really well. And then I took my portfolio returns and ran them through our internal uh, analysis software. And it turns out I'm really horrible at it. So after work one day, I went down the street to a uh, financial advisory firm, opened an account there, and now they handle everything and I'm doing much better. And this person was educated in finance to the extremes, which goes to show you, it's not only about um, a mathematical edge, uh, your trading ability, a lot of it is psychological because this person had the ability, as was demonstrated, to invest billions of dollars in a way that made that put them at the top of their industry. But their own account, on their own account, you know, their brain uh, betrayed them, their intellect betrayed them, and they knew they were better off with another person handling their personal account. Amazing. Uh, what do you make of today's markets? We've 25% uh, decline from the start of the year. It doesn't look very good with an high inflation, more interest rates coming. Um, just the whole geopolitics, war in Ukraine, and a war, a political war over natural resources. Sure. Well, let's take it back to 2008 and QE. Uh, and that really started this because when you started QE, and you continued in QE uh, and essentially expanding the uh, Fed's uh, balance sheet, what ended up happening was you broke the price discovery process. And for those of you who don't understand price discovery, it's real, it's real simple idea. And I'll go to eBay. Let's say you pick up a, a shirt in your closet and you've never worn it. It's an expensive shirt and you want to sell it to raise some cash. 
Well, you go start knocking on doors. Then eBay comes along. Well, now you have thousands of eyes on this shirt and they're all bidding for it. That's price discovery. You put the shirt out into the market and you got a true market price because it, the, it, was, a, uh, it, it was free for everybody to bid on. So you know what your shirt's worth. When you mess with interest rates, because you don't want market uh, equity or debt markets to suffer, and you don't want asset sheet balances to suffer, the Fed put us basically at zero interest rates, which basically broke the price discovery mechanism. And we have to figure out what prices are again. And that's not going to happen, uh, I think, for quite some many years to come. And when, uh, when Putin invaded Ukraine, anybody could have seen what was going to come afterwards. Like I said, I'm pretty good at spotting market downturns. And I know from my time in Greece and listening to my relatives in Greece that Ukraine exported grain essentially to Europe. Most of Europe experienced Ukrainian grain. And when that was interrupted, now you know the grain markets are going to suffer. And on top of that, we had an administration which decided to uh, decided to inhibit our domestic energy's production abilities. Um, it, it's not good. And John, I wish I could tell you when it's going to end. Um, I don't know. It's going to be many years. That's not to say the market might not come back for many years, but I would point people to other markets uh, such as the Nikkei, which had a, what was it, a 15-year downturn in the debt markets too, which I believe for the first time since 1961 are performing worse than the equity markets in a downturn. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, true, tr truly amazing. And um, I mean, there's so many ways you could just um, dig deep into this whole Wall Street uh, machine and the wealth management uh, model. I mean, even stock picking, because you have a section in your book about just basically stocks that were trash and were sold to investors over the years. And I guess in theory and in reality, we're still doing that on some there are companies out there they have no earnings except a good story and there are companies out there who have great earnings but just lousy story or and the company with no earnings and no future is outperforming the market quite bizarre it is quite bizarre and what you uh, allude to in all of that is really the need for a financial advisor who is skilled to get your hand and wade you through this because we're not looking at a one two year uh, horizon for your retirement. We're looking for a 10, 20, 30 year horizon for your retirement, which is uh, which is why when all of these things bubble to the surface in the media and you think that, they, oh, that, that must be the way to go, when what they really are is shiny, flashy things that you really need to stay away from. That said, you know, why in the world would a investment firm still have a buy on Enron the day after the fraud was revealed? And that happened. That really happened. People yes. were still trying to buy Lehman. People were still trying to buy Enron. I, I sometimes wonder, you know, how much, how deficient people are in math and logic. Yeah, and it, it, it truly, I mean, then you could just go through the whole dot-com boom and bust and how um, Bitcoin. financial advisors were on the front line of peddling those stocks and you had analysts writing up glowing reports. Um, but that's maybe for another uh, episode, Norm, because the name of your book here is Wall Street's Grand Deception. Can you just a quick, again, summary, uh, summary advice for sure. the regular consumer, what they should be aware of, how to pick financial advisors and how not to get scammed. It doesn't mean 
they're going to be millionaires, even if they do the right thing, but at least they'll protect themselves in a better and sounder way, we hope. Sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. A financial advisor is not going to get you rich. The only thing that is going to get you rich is your job. So let's get that out of the way. Uh, I This book is not about bashing financial advisors because a good financial advisor is an investor's best asset. However, before you hire a financial advisor, you really need to take the time to do your due diligence. And by that, you should, of course, investigate their regulatory background to make sure that they don't have any uh, red flags. But you also need to find out if they're skilled. Do they have a track record that's been uh, audited and verified? One of the tricks I give, um, and it's going to take a little bit of gumption to do it, is have them pull up their Amazon account and see what books they buy. Because I promise you this, John, if you go on Facebook or you go on a, a, web, a web search engine and you start going, uh, become a financial, become a better financial advisor, and I've done this, your Facebook page starts getting populated with ads on how to get clients not how to perform better on the portfolios that you manage. So has your financial advisor been buying books to educate them on the market, on economics, or has your financial advisor been buying books on how to get more clients? That's the first thing I would say. Uh, the second thing I would say is that if they cannot prove a financial track record, but they are somebody that you like and you think you can trust, go on commission first. Do okay. not... Do not pay assets under management. And you tell them that you are going to be using a third-party portfolio performance reporting provider like we are developing at financialadvisorcheck.com. That's your and company. That's my company. We are providing the world's first third-party objective portfolio performance reporting uh, app. And we're in beta now. If you want to be a beta tester, you can go to financialadvisorcheck.com and sign up for our to be a beta tester. But essentially, if your financial advisor does very well, show them the report. They will love it because their own company doesn't tell them if they have investing skill or not. Their own company only counts how much assets come in the door and how much they generate in revenue. And if you do have a financial advisor that is good, tell your friends make the referrals. If you have a financial advisor that you believe is wanting, look at them and say, you know, we're gonna really gonna have to address our compensation program until your returns and your performance come back into line with things that uh, where I believe they should be. We're not here to endorse your company, or but give us the name one more time and your website, any other contact details? Sure, the name of the book is Wall Street's Grand Deception. The name of the company is financialadvisorcheck.com. Norman Papoose, thank you for being on my show. Thank you, John. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699.
That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.